Well, when we think about the, the great, you know, Palm Sunday and Christ coming into Jerusalem, you know, when I remember hearing about this a kid, as a kid, I started, like, imagining what it might be like, you know, I try to imagine where it would be and, and sort of what it would look like and so on and so forth, and is the more I learned about it, the more the way I imagined it as a kid probably wasn't particularly correct, okay? So I'm going to try to help us at least put us physically where we might be here when we talk about the triumphal rem- entry. So Jesus was traveling. He's probably on this road that starts like in Jericho, and then it goes through Bethany, and then it goes through this place called Bethpage, and then into Jerusalem. This road from Jericho is about 17 miles, and 17 miles in Bible times is... A really long, a long ways. And so he's probably on this particular road that was built by the Romans. And so he's on his way. He arrives in Bethany about six days before the Passover. Now, I'm just going to say there's some debate on some of these things. And I'm going to go with the trust me on this one. Okay. Uh, he, and uh, he stayed there for the Sabbath. And then he entered Jerusalem on Sunday. Because, of course, the Sabbath is on Saturday. And just to kind of help us out here. To see a map, we, uh, Jesus came in from the east, and when he comes in from the east, you can see he goes through Bethany, and then he goes through Bethpage. Now, this area of Bethpage, we actually don't know particularly where it is. So there's actually like at least two churches, one started by the Catholics, one started by the Ethan Orthodox, that are in this area over here, and maybe they got the location right. But maybe they didn't. We're not sure. We know he came in from the east. So that's not really an issue. It's just the exact location of this Beth Pages. And you can see there he passes over the Mount of Olives. And in a minute we're going to watch a video to kind of help us understand what the Mount of Olives looks like. So he kind of goes over this Mount of Olives. He gets the, the donkey that he's going to ride in Beth Page. He goes over. He goes down the Kidron Valley, which is a big valley, which we'll look at later. And then this particular map shows that he goes into the temple through the eastern gate. I don't think he went through the temple in the eastern gate. I think he probably went through what's sometimes called the lion's gate, which would be more up here. The eastern gate's a very interesting place, just a FYI, that no one, has very little to do with my sermon. But uh, the eastern gate's actually been closed up since like the medieval times. You cannot go through the eastern gate. So when I was in Israel... And we were on top of the Temple Mount, uh, that this temple, this little uh, red box you can see here. When we were on top of that, you'd go look at the Eastern Gate. It just looked all cemented up or bricked up or whatever, and you couldn't go. You couldn't even get too close. And there is no archaeological digging allowed there. I mean, there's a lot of political mumbo-jumbo going on there. So the whole archaeology thing is a big debate. And so... Jesus came in. Now, when we look at, just a minute, when we look at the uh, video to kind of help us sort of visualize what the topography is, the really important thing you can always find is the, the uh, Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is the big gold dome. That's kind of the thing that always helps me be able to identify where things are. So the Dome of the Rock is about on our T or around the E area here is where the Dome of the Rock will be. And if you're wondering... What it is sitting on, it's sitting on a big box. It's, I think it's like 32 acres. This box is like 32 acres because Herod decided that he couldn't build a big enough temple on Mount Moriah. It wasn't large enough, so he decided to build this giant box on top so he could build a bigger temple. But of course, by Jesus' time, 
The temple was no longer there. The Romans came, destroyed everything. They pushed every single stone off the temple. As a matter of fact, some people argue we still can have some, find some of these stones that were from the temple that were pushed off. But the Romans could not destroy the box. And so this red box still exists. And if you ever travel to Jerusalem and you go to the Temple Mount and you go to the Wailing Wall... So is when Rob goes there with uh, sunrise, he'll see the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is about right here. It's just kind of this corner area. And all it is, the wall is just the side of the box. You stand inside the box, you pray, and then you maybe put your prayers in the, put them on, write them on sheets and put them on the Jews' wood. And the Jews, of course, will not go on top of the Temple Mount because the Temple Mount had the temple, but they're not exactly sure where the temple was. So you don't want to go up there and actually walk around on the Holy of Holies. So they all refuse to go to the temple. They will go just to the wailing walls that sometimes called and pray there. As a matter of fact, sometimes they even when they pray, they turn slightly to the left because they think they're maybe pointing more directly to where the temple would have been. So they don't stand quite square. They might turn slightly to the left when they, uh, left when they pray. So when Jesus came, he comes from the east, he's coming down, he's going to be able to see the temple. Of course, he would, wouldn't see the Dome of the Rock, which is there now. He would see uh, whatever, what they had back then. With, uh, he would see uh, the, uh, the temple that was there in his time. And so we go on to verse 1. So verse 1 tells us that now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So he sends two disciples to go to Bethpage ahead of him on the Mount of Olives. Now we're going to watch this little video, and Alex is going to help me stop it here every once in a while. If you uh, look at this with me, this is kind of a really zoomed out view, and this is God telling you you should sit closer to the front. Okay, because for all of you in the back, you pretty much can't even see it. And so this is just like a sign from the Lord that you are supposed to be up towards the front. But as we get here towards this area, we're kind of coming up to a really important part. I'm going to have Alex pause it here in just a second. So Alex, go ahead and pause it uh, right about now. You can see here's our little Dome of the Rock. Okay, so there's the kind of the gold ball you might be able to see. And this, once again, God telling you to sit close to the front. And this is actually the eastern side. We're looking from the east. So you remember our map, the east side, Jesus is coming? So we're actually the bottom of our video right here. This is actually the hill that Jesus was climbing over. And so when he crests this hill, you can see how he'd be looking down on Jerusalem. And Beth Page probably, we think, was kind of on the east side of this hill. So before you would get over the hill and be able to see the temple and everything, you'd be on the east side of it. So... As we continue on here, we see where Jesus would have come over. You can kind of tell here there's a valley going on. This would be the Kidron Valley that he would be going down. That's famous. The Kidron Valley is talked about all the time. And if we stop it right here and you get your binoculars out, you can see the eastern gate. It's right there. I promise. That's the eastern gate. It's all cemented up. And so this is kind of the east side. You can't see the terraces very well, but the eastern side has all these terraces on it. And on, on those terraces, if my memory is correct, is all Muslim, uh, a graveyard. And so, of course, if you would like to do any archaeology, 
Muslims would not particularly like you to dig up their graveyard, so they don't really do anything archaeological there either. And as uh, we continue on, we'll get a few more views. This is kind of panorama. This is from the north side. So if you look here, you can see the Temple Mount. And as it continues to go on here, this is also more the north side. So Alex, if you stop it here for me, you, this is the Kidron Valley. So Jesus came in from that direction we saw at the very beginning, and he comes down this way, right? And I argued he came in right about here. So he's going up, he's going down. Now, you can see from this video, it's a long ways, but like it's not that long. You know, this isn't like that long of a distance between Bethpage to Jerusalem. I mean, if you were able-bodied, you could walk it, right? I mean, it's not that incredibly long, and it's not that incredibly huge. So as we continue on here, kind of get a picture of how this valley, the Kidron Valley is super famous in the Bible. It's talked about all the time. It's referenced uh, periodically throughout the Bible. This is another big panoramic view. This is a very large view. You can see this is the eastern wall. You can see our golden dome. You can see the south side. If you get your binoculars, you can even see the kind of the corner here that has, this would be the wailing wall right there is where that would be. And then uh, we look at it again. Now we're looking at from the south side. So here's our Kidron Valley over here. Here's our Gold Dome of the Rock. So Jesus came in from the east here. This is the southern wall. And here is the Wailing Wall right there, that little corner. And so we once again get another panoramic view, kind of the same direction. Kidron Valley right over here is our big mountain. And I think we have one more view we're going to get. We're going to get a pretty good view of the Mount of Olives in which Jesus crossed. Yes, so this is it. So if you just stop it here for a second, this is the Mount of Olives. And so we saw that Kidron Valley from a lot of different angles. This is the mount that he's going to come over and crest when he goes in. So when I was in Israel, we got to go up onto the Mount of Olives and be able to sit roughly where we think maybe Jesus did a few things. And then we got to stand on top and look down and be like, yep, this is where Jesus, when he was riding the donkey, this is where he came over, roughly, and this is what he would have seen and what it would have looked like. So, Jesus says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, we're just going through the uh, passage here in Matthew. It's uh, the stories in other places, so I'm not going to address those too much. But the other places don't have colt and the donkey. They just have one so why does he have both and the others don't? It's probably because he's sort of emphasizing this colt was still with his mother. Therefore, the colt was still unbroken and still unridden. And so the reason he probably wanted to have an unbroken colt could be because um, unused animals sometimes were seen as like more pure. I, I'm not sure if this is why one of the reasons, but sometimes, you know, it was just kind of seen as a purity thing that the animal was sacred, it had never been used, it had never been written. Um, you know, when you, got, when you rode a colt, you would actually, you probably what happened is they would drape garments across both the mother and the colt, and then you would ride one, and of course he would ride the colt. Then we get to verse 3, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, I always thought this felt a little bit like stealing, like this is a kid, right? I'm a kid. Like, so he just goes and says, 
oh, you've got this colt. I'll take that, you know, right? And that's kind of always felt to me. But what's interesting here is as the Lord needs them, the Lord could mean that Jesus actually owned them. He could be the Lord not as like God Lord, but just like, you know, the, the, the owner of them and somehow he owned them. That's probably quite unlikely. Like, why would he own donkeys in Beth? You know, it just doesn't seem like that's it. What's actually probably going on here is it was actually allowed back then that if you were a king, you could just, you know, take the people's animals. I mean, that was like allowed and normal, and that would be normally, you know, you'd press the animals of people into service. So much different than us. I mean, can you imagine the military being like, oh, Joel, can I use your hybrid? We really need it for this battle. I mean, it's like, yeah, like, well, like my hybrid's going to help you. <laughs> I'm not sure you're going to need it. But back then, you know, the government might need your vehicle. Of course, it was an animal. They would press it into service. And another thing that they would do back then, that is probably actually what's going on here, is that Jewish teachers, if people recognized them as a Jewish teacher, people would very willing let them borrow their animals. That was like, that was apparently common. Like that wouldn't been seen as a big deal. So it may not even be that Jesus is like taking this animal or saying, I'm the king. I'm the king of kings. I'm God. I, I can have this. It may just be him just saying, we recognize you as a teacher you're welcome to be able to use this. And that is actually what's going on here. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. And of course, this quote comes from Isaiah 62, 11 is kind of the beginning. And the rest is Zechariah 9, 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You know, donkeys were sometimes writ- ridden by kings during peacetime to show everyone that they were living in a time of peace. So Christ, when he came and he comes to the triumphal entry, he's not only showing how he's the Messiah, he's also indicating what kind of kingdom he's bringing. What did everyone want him to bring? They wanted him to come in on a military horse. And take down the Romans. That is absolutely what they wanted. Does Jesus come and take out the Romans? No, he doesn't. Best I know, he got one ear. It was about all of his followers did as far as violence in his time. Christ's ministry was not one of violence. The disciples went and Jesus and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, once again, he says he sat on them, put the cloaks upon them. Obviously, he's only sitting on one of them. It would be kind of like me saying, hey, I'm going to go ride the horses. I'm I'm not really riding them all at the same time, obviously. I'm just thinking I'm going to ride the horses is probably kind of what that phrase is referring to. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So Matthew doesn't mention that they're palm branches, but John 12, 31 is the one that specifically mentions palm branches. And the reason they probably use palm branches is actually a sort of reference back for them to some of the triumphs that had taken place during the Maccabean Revolt. If you don't know anything about the Maccabean Revolt... Maybe one of these days we'll touch on a passage and I will go on a big long tangent about what happened during the Maccabean Revolt because it will be a long one. But that very, may, mel, um, very well may be the reason they chose palm branches. And the Maccabean Revolt was, of course, 
uh, one of violence and where they revolted against the Romans. They saw Jesus as more of a revolutionary. Oh, the palm branches were probably a signal that they wanted him to you know, take up arms. We go into verse 9, and the crowds that went before him, so it seemed like there were people that had come with him, followers from Galilee, maybe the time he had spent in Bethany, had, had uh, the news of him had spread, so there were people coming forth. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, of course, means save us, save us. And what do you think they wanted to be saved from? Probably not their sins is probably not what they had in their mind. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. Now this quote, what they're saying here, comes from Psalms 118, 25, 26. Uh, the mention of the son of David shows that they seem to view Christ as the king, so they were getting that right. But they didn't see him as a servant. You can just imagine how hard it was for them to grasp. We have this king, he's going to come, and his big plan is to suffer and die. That's the plan. Just hard to imagine. As a matter of fact, when we think of the end times or whatnot, and, you know, what do we often, we often say something like, it's not incorrect, we're going to win in the end, right? And how do we usually kind of think about that? Like, even when I think about it, I usually tend to think, the way I'm going to win isn't by suffering a lot, right? It seems like maybe the way I'm going to win is I'm going to make other people suffer. And when he entered Jerusalem, the city, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And so the people had to go before him, the ones that had followed him, maybe followed from Galilee or maybe some that had picked up in Bethany because the people of Jerusalem didn't know who he was to try to help us see here where the lion's gate is, where I think he probably entered. The lion's gate is this gate right here. This is the eastern gate, sometimes called the golden gate. Another thing that's interesting about it, one of my professors, when I was on my trip to Israel, he thought the eastern gate was never going to be opened, or people didn't want it to be opened because some of the prophecies in Revelation talk about Jesus coming in. Through the eastern gate. So there's arguments that the Muslims, uh, they blocked it for that, perp- uh, for that very reason. And they are motivated to keep it that way. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, of all the, of all the things that people may have gotten wrong that day, they got something really right. So they didn't quite understand what kind of king Jesus was going to be. They did recognize that he was the king. And they did recognize that he was going to save them. And today I'd like us to think about a couple things. First of all, have you recognized in your life that Jesus is the one that you need to save you? Jesus Christ is the one that gives us salvation, the opportunity for eternity in heaven. Secondly, maybe you got the salvation thing okay. Maybe, maybe you settled that some time ago. But is Christ really the king of your life? 
is he the king? Sometimes we think of God more like a, more like a magic guy in the sky that's going to help us out. A little bit like the Jews thought what God was going to do, what Jesus was going to do when he came as Messiah. He was going to help them out with their, with their problems. And that's, that's, what, that's what Jesus is for. Jesus is not our magic man in the sky that does us favors. Jesus is our king that we have the opportunity to serve with our lives. We serve him. Of course, he loves us. He cares for us. He paid the ultimate price. But we live for him. Let's pray. Today, we just thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the stories we, we have about how he came, about what he did. But we just thank you that the, this group of people did recognize him as king. And though, though not perfect, just as we're not perfect, I just thank you that they did recognize it. And Lord, I just pray that we would recognize you as king, that we would recognize that you save. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.